This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn there. Mark, chapter 2. And we'll be reading verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. If you're newer to scripture and you're trying to find your way along, you can turn to the New Testament. Back half of the Bible, Mark is the second book in the Gospel, in, in the New Testament. So let us hear God's word from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was not made, but the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him and how they might how to destroy him. This is God's good and true word of grace, given that all may find their rest in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would speak through your word, that you would open our eyes to see it, and ultimately that you would open our eyes to see Jesus. Father, we know that your word is living and active, and it meets us where we are. So, Father, we ask that you would encourage us, change us, convict us. Lord Jesus, we ask that you might be lifted up, that you might be seen and worshipped as Lord, and that we might rely more and more on your grace. Speak to us, we pray, in these next few moments that we have together. And we ask all this for the glory of you, our God and Father, and for the glory of Jesus, our King. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. So this morning, as you might have guessed, we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 23 through 36. And we're going to be looking at this familiar passage to some of you and the notion of who is Jesus in relation to our time. What does it mean for Jesus, and what does it mean for as we think about our time in relation to Christ? And in particular, in this passage, it's, it seems to be that Jesus is talking about the Sabbath. What does Jesus have to say about the Sabbath? What does Jesus have to say about the time? And so recently, as I was preparing, I came across an article in, in, in a magazine called The Atlantic, and the article was this. The title, rather, was this. How Civilization Has Broken Our Brains. How civilization has broken or broke our brains. And in the article, Derek Thompson looks at the work of sociologists over the last century 
and it looks at the life of Western culture since about 1900. And in the article, Thompson is reflecting on the work of sociologists, and he talks about this phenomenon that they, they, that they allude to called the Sunday Scaries. Maybe you are like me, and you've probably never heard of the Sunday Scaries. I had never heard of it before then. It sounded like something from a comic book, but it wasn't that at all. It was actually quite the opposite. And so as Thompson begins to explain this term, he says what the Sunday Scaries are is a physiological and psychological phenomena that happen when stress or anxiety floods the body as a result of stimulus. And in this particular case, sociologists were studying a group of people who were experiencing this on a Sunday as they looked forward to the work week. Today, you might think of this as what, the precursor to what we might call burnout or exhaustion. And so Thompson goes on to make the case that for many of us today, our habits, our practices, both Christian and non, both in our working lives and in our personal lives, seem to be taking their toll. And I imagine if we were to go around the room and I were to ask you, how has your week been? How are you doing coming into today? Do you ever, have you felt tired? Have you felt exhausted? Have you felt pushed beyond your limits this week? My guess would probably be yes. The truth is that we live so often as though our abilities and our time are infinite. We live as though we have more capability than we actually do. And I think that we can agree that the pace in the world in which we occupy, it doesn't seem to be getting any slower. It seems to be getting faster. And this only seems to increase as we are technologically connected. Everything that seems to be speeding up around us, the world seems to be speeding up, the demands that are placed upon us, it seems to just be getting faster and faster and faster. And yet, maybe you're like me, the number of hours in your day doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So you often leave, you're often left with this feeling of, I have more to do than time to do it. But here's the question, why? Why are we spinning ourselves frenetically? Why are we giving ourselves to so much? Why are we giving ourselves, whether it's to work or to family or to extracurricular hobbies, why are we giving ourselves out, just hauling our kids around to different sports practices? Why are we putting in the extra 10 and 15 and 20 hours in the office? Why do we feel so compelled to do this? Maybe you might say it's faithfulness. Maybe for some of you, you might say, as Harold Abrams did in the movie Chariots of Fire, I have but a brief moment to justify my existence. And if I don't do this, am I really worth anything? Am I really worth anything? I think there is something within us that Abrams was pointing out, and I think there's something within maybe you and me that there's this nagging feeling that bugs us. We have to do more. We have to prove ourselves. We have to prove ourselves to others. We have to prove ourselves to God. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you haven't. Maybe you, but I venture to guess that most of you, you have. You see, I think the reality is that for some of us, we fear that if we don't do enough, the boss won't accept you, and maybe you won't get the promotion that you're longing for. If you don't put all of your kids in the right activities, maybe the world will look around you and think, you're actually not providing, and maybe you're a bad parent. 
Perhaps the person that you're seeking approval from, and this is my case, the person that you're seeking approval from is actually the person that stares back at you in the mirror every morning when you get up. And what you hear when you get up every morning, when you look in the mirror, you hear this voice that says, you're not enough. And to the truth, whether you are here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus or you're not, there is something about us, there's something about our common humanity that longs to know that we are enough. That longs to know we are doing enough. That longs to know that our time matters, that our work matters, and that the rest and refreshment that we seek is actually available to us. Because God created us that way. You see, the Bible tells us this story that the Bible says that you were designed from the very beginning of time. From the very beginning of creation, you were designed to have a work and rest life that, was, that mattered and that made a difference that was satisfying. And yet how often do we find ourselves perpetually frustrated because the demands continue to pile up and the rest and the refreshment that we seek even on this day, the Sabbath day, the Lord's day as we call it in the Christian church, seems unavailable or unsatisfying. And we go home tired. How often do we find ourselves that way? And I would say quite often. You see, it escapes us. Meaningful work and meaningful rest escapes us because of the world in which we occupy that is affected by sin. And it's been that way since the beginning of time. And, and we find ourselves coming into this passage and, 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 and longing for meaningful work, longing for meaningful rest, longing to, to view our time in a way that is faith, in, in accordance with what God has for us. And this is where we come into the story of Mark. Mark chapter 2 finds Jesus as, as he's been doing in the first previous chapters, and he comes in into this situation, and he's faced once again with the Pharisees. And we learn something really peculiar. He's encountering these religious leaders. And in this case, the religious leaders, in just a few, if you were to turn back a few chapters, you would find them doing something similar with the spiritual practice or discipline of fasting. And here we find the religious leaders encountering Jesus, but this time it's about the Sabbath. It's about Sabbath. And Jesus seems to be doing something that's really upsetting the cultural norms and practices of the day. And that's because the religious leaders in his time, they're looking to their religion, in this case they're looking to Sabbath observance to save them. To appease God, to make them right, to have this sense of I'm okay and I'm doing enough. And this is where we find Jesus encountering them. And he tells us some really important things. We find Jesus, as he relates to the Pharisees that we just, in the text that we just read, he, we find that when we actually see Jesus, he's actually going to invite the Pharisees and he's, and he's going to invite you and I to find true rest in him. And we also learn that this bigger picture umbrella under which all this falls is that when you think about time, all of time, not just Sabbath time, but all of time belongs to Christ. You see, King Jesus is king. The Bible calls him a king. And he says that time is mine. It belongs to me. It belongs under my rule. And it is a kingdom commodity by which you now get to glorify God, grow in grace, and live for the good of those around you. But before we get there, and as we get into our text, there's two things that I want to look at this morning. I want to look at their view of time, 
That would be Pharisees, religious leaders' view of time, and our Lord's view of time. And so the story that we just read jumps back in and begins like this in verse 23. Jesus and his disciples are going through the grain fields. They're out on a Sabbath day. Mark makes it pretty clear that on the Sabbath day, that would have been a, a Saturday, a Friday or Friday evening to a Saturday. They're going through the grain fields. And as they make their way, they begin to pluck these ears of grain. He doesn't tell us why. He doesn't tell us if they're hungry. He doesn't tell us anything. He doesn't give us a lot of details. But we see that his disciples are going through these grain fields and they begin to pluck these ears of corn, this, this grain. And what that meant was they begin to take and they begin to kind of rub this in between their hands and rub it in between their hands as a means of sustenance to get food. And the religious leaders see them doing this. And they say to Jesus, why are you doing or why are you allowing your followers to do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, the Sabbath day for the Jewish people, many of you are probably incredibly familiar with the Sabbath. But the Sabbath day for the Jewish people was a distinguishing marker. As a matter of fact, there are some commentators, some theologians, even some Jewish rabbinical writers who would say there are two distinguishing th things about being a Jew. Number one is circumcision. Number two is Sabbath. So for the Jews, a, a Sabbath, a, a sense of rest was a big deal. It set them apart from the rest of the world around them. It distinguished them from the world around them. It was a day in which they were allowed to lean into their limits, to rest from their labor, and ultimately to offer worship to God. It was an important day. A day when they gathered together, not, they didn't merely individually isolate themselves, but they gathered together as a community. They, they found ways to worship God. They found ways to do deeds of mercy and show care and compassion to their neighbor. It was a day given to them from God. If you're familiar with, this, with the story of Scripture, all the way back in the beginning of Genesis, we read, God worked on six days and he rested on the seventh. It was given to them by God. And so this Sabbath day that, that we find Mark addressing, that we find the religious leaders asking this question, this is a day that is an incredibly important day. It is the Sabbath day that would have began on a Friday evening and lasted all the way through sundown on Saturday. In the Jewish world, it was known the day known as Shabbat. Back in 2019, my wife Whitney and I had the opportunity to travel to Israel, and we got to spend some time in Jerusalem. And we were there one Sabbath evening. And we were there with a group of people from across the country. And I remember when we were, we were there, we were leaving our hotel, and, and you began to experience something that was incredibly peculiar, at least for us in the West. <clears throat> Once sun, the sun started to set on a Friday evening, much of the city of Jerusalem began to shut down. I mean, storefronts began to close, lights began to go off, and you began to see families walking and making their way to the Temple, to the temple Mount what is there famously known as the Western Wall. And you began to see people just in droves making their way to this Temple Mount. And one night while we were there, we decided, a group of us decided that we would go down to see the Temple Mount on, on the Sabbath, on the Shabbat. And so as we made our way, we, we go through the security, we go through all the checkpoints, and we make our way to the Western Wall, and we begin to observe everything that was going on in this place. And as I said, it's peculiar. It, it was something that I had never experienced in my life. 
On the one hand, you had some people down at the Western Wall, and you could hear them verbally. Their, their echoes were just resounding through this massive structure of the temple. And you could hear them crying out and praying to God. And yet you could hear other people over here, and you could see little children following their rabbis and their Torah lessons, and they were reciting and they were repeating things back and over and over again. And for others, they were joined together in community and in dancing and in celebration. It was something that I will never forget because it was, it was a time when I got to see what it meant, what it looked like for worship and celebration and community and, and learning to come together in this, this beautiful thing. And there was something incredibly important that I think takes place that we often miss. And granted, we could make the argument that they're missing a huge component and that they're missing Jesus, Right? But there's something that they understand about the Sabbath that I think we could really learn from. And yet, so they're on this Sabbath day and, and, and they're, they're celebrating and, and, and these Pharisees ask this question, why are you allowing your, your followers to pluck this grain? Why are you allowing them to do this? And, and they ask this question because, you see, as time progressed throughout the world, as time progressed, the Sabbath, the idea of the Sabbath, which was founded by God in the Old Testament and coming into the New Testament, it became less and less about God. It became less and less about resting. It became less and less about worship. And it actually became an exercise in keeping the rules. In her book, the Sabbath World author Judith Shulovitz actually notes this. She said, the book, the, 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 the Sabbath became codified after Christ's death, so much so that the rabbis actually now have 39 articles. You might think of these as 39 rules, 39 do's and don'ts on the Sabbath day. Some of those in, that, were, that were present in the life of Jesus are, in, are present even today. Some of those included things like not handling money. You didn't do transactions. You didn't harvest. You didn't take corn and grain and rub it between your fingers. You didn't travel more than 3,000 feet from your home. Some of these feel a bit arbitrary, and some of them are more severe. But nonetheless, there's this sense within Judaism by, in the rabbinical law that, that there is these, there's these rules, these do's and don'ts, these things that you do and you don't do on the Sabbath. Which is why they come to him and they say, why? Why are you allowing your followers to break the rules? But the question is this. Why are they really that bothered? Are they bothered because he's breaking the rules? Are they really bothered about the Sabbath? Is that what, the, is that what really gets them? And the answer, I think, is I don't know if it's that. I don't know if it's just that. You see, if you follow the religious leaders long enough, you'll know that something about them, what they long for, what they, what they have in their, in their midst, what they're used to is this place of position and power. You see, the Pharisees and the religious leaders in the, in the, old in, in the time of Jesus, they were the ones, they, they, had, they were used to calling the shots. They were the ones who got the chance to make, every, make all the rules and tell people what it looked like to live faithfully. And here comes Jesus once again on the heels of fasting and healing in the, in, the, in, the, in the synagogue, which he's already done. Here he comes again disrupting one of the main things it means to be Jewish. And they're not, and they're not used to this. 
You see, Jesus is coming in and he's showing a disregard for their authority. He's showing what they believe is a disregard for the faith. And Jesus, and so they ask this question, why? Why? And so the question is, is why does Jesus do it? Why does Jesus allow his followers to break the Sabbath? And my, I would submit to you that what I think is actually going on here, what I think Jesus is actually doing here, I think Jesus actually sees something fundamentally broken in the way that they view the Sabbath. You see, God had given the Sabbath, and God gives you and I today the Sabbath for the purpose of rest and refreshment, and ultimately for the purpose of resting. It is a day when we get to lift the burdens off our backs and remind ourselves of the goodness and grace of God. It is a day where we get to come together to worship, to celebrate all of who God is and all that God has done for us. But for the Pharisees, they took a day that was a burden, that, that was meant to be a burden lifter, and they laid it upon the backs of their people even heavier. There was nothing about rest. It was a day in which the, 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 the bodies and minds and backs of the people of God were broken, and, and they were being suppressed under all the rules. Rather than being about God, it was about them. And I think Jesus knew that. Jesus is a perceptive king, and he knew that. And so he comes on, and, and, he, and, he, and he allows his disciples to do this. And, and to answer the question he, to, as to why he might be subverting the Sabbath, you might say, we begin to look up in verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? Have you never read what David did? He, and so to answer the question, he, he says, he, he pulls back on a story from the Old Testament. You could turn to 1 Samuel 21 if you wanted to, to look at this story. And, and Jesus, he draws on a tactic or a tool that the rabbis themselves, the religious leaders would have used. And that was this, when you wanted to debate, when you wanted to argue something to establish your credibility, it wasn't merely about your own words or your own ideas, you drew back on history. Right, you might call this comparing a scripture text to another scripture text to prove your point. That's what Jesus was doing here. Jesus says, I, I'm going to look back at the life of David, and I want you to remember what David did. He says to the religious leaders, the most well-educated religious people of the day who probably knew the Bible backwards and forwards and forwards and backwards, and he says to them, have you never read? Of course they'd read. In the story, we find David and his men walking into the temple, and they take the bread of the presence, which is holy bread, or bread set apart for only the priests themselves to use. And we find that David actually takes the bread, and he eats it, and he gives it to his men. Now, on its face, the story doesn't tell us that this actually took place on the Sabbath. We can assume, based on some of the details, that it possibly did, but that's, that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is actually going for here. You see, Jesus actually uses a scripture that doesn't actually answer the question. As a matter of fact, the, the story about David and his men eating the bread of the presence doesn't really have anything to do with Sabbath law. Instead, Jesus is not interested in answering their question. He's actually answer, he wants to answer and show a bigger question. He wants, people to, he wants them to understand who he is and where his authority lies. You see, David comes into the temple, and he's able to override the system. He's, he's, over, he's able to defy cultural norms and standards, and he's able to do what 
other people aren't allowed to do as king. And he comes in and he eats the bread of the presence and, and Jesus says, have you never read that when he was hungry, he did this? And he said to them in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Have you ever been in a conversation where you ask somebody a question or maybe an argument where you ask somebody, you make a statement and you want them to respond and they actually don't give you the answer that you were looking for? Have you ever been in a conversation like that and, if, and you find yourself maybe a little bit frustrated? I can only imagine being the religious leaders. They pose this question to Jesus and he insults their intelligence by drawing back on a scripture saying, have you never read? And the scripture doesn't actually have anything to do with the question that they asked. It's almost like he sidesteps the question altogether because he wants to make a point that isn't about the Sabbath necessarily. It's about this. The Son of Man is Lord, even for the Sabbath. Interestingly enough, this is the first time that Jesus uses the, or that Mark uses the word so distinctly. Here he uses the Greek word for Lord, which is kurios. And I would say that this is what Jesus has in mind. If you want to know the burden of this text, if you want to know the burden of what Jesus is trying to get under, he wants you to understand that he is Lord. He is Lord. And this is what the Pharisees miss. They're worried about the Sabbath. They're worried about the practices. They're worried about the discipline and keeping the rules. And Jesus says, listen, you're missing it. I told you the story because David had an authority to walk into the temple and to do what wasn't permitted by culture. And if his authority was great enough to do that, I'm here to tell you that my authority is greater. I am Lord. And if I am Lord, then I get to define, I get to declare what is right, what is wrong, even on the Sabbath. And so the question is, is how does Jesus view the Sabbath? How does he do this? And so it, it, it's an interesting debate that happens here. One commentator, R.T. France, notes this. Not only does Jesus have the power and authority to heal and the power to forgive sins, which has all taken place up to this point in Mark, but now Jesus is declaring to have authority of the most sacred practice in the Jewish Sabbath. It's a subversive claim. Jesus is saying, I am Lord, I have authority, and I have authority over all things. And this is one of the reasons that you'll find at the end of chapter 3, it, he's, he, when, they, when they find out, they're looking for Jesus and whether or not he's going to heal on the Sabbath, and he ends up healing on the Sabbath, which we'll get to in a minute. But they go out and they make partnership with the Herodians. This across-the-aisle political entity, they go off and they make this partnership with him, for the sole purpose of get rid of, getting rid of Jesus. It goes back to the power. They're threatened by Jesus. They're threatened by what he represents to them. And they're thinking, if we can just get rid of this Jesus, if we can just get rid of him, if we can just get him out of our hair, he is a troublemaker, he is a rule breaker. We've got to get rid of him. But it goes back to the question, if Jesus is Lord of Sabbath, if Jesus is Lord of Sabbath time. How does he view Sabbath time? What does he view as right or wrong 
about Sabbath time. And that brings us into Mark chapter 3. And so we find ourselves in, the, in Mark chapter 3. We find the disciples, they have come back from the grain field. They have come back from this journey. They have made their way to the place of worship, to the Jewish synagogue. And so far, if you were to look at Mark's gospel up through chapter 3, you would find that when Jesus comes into the synagogue, things begin to happen. Disruption begins to happen. Jesus begins to do things that defy cultural customs as he comes into the place of worship. And so we come into Mark chapter 3, and you can almost envision yourself walking into this place, and there is something that is happening. The tension is so thick in the air, you could cut it with a knife. Jesus and his disciples are there, the religious leaders are there, and Mark says they are on pins and needles. They are watching Jesus, and why are they watching him? To see if he'll heal. To see if he'll do what is not permitted on the Sabbath. To see if they can catch him in the act. To see if they can get him to do what is not lawful for the very purpose of what? Accusing him. They want to gather the data. They're looking for the evidence. They're saying, Jesus, just give us what we need. Because they know what happens if they get the evidence they need. If they see Jesus heal, they might be able to bring a case against this man. They might be able to bring him before the courts. They might be able to ultimately get him arrested and tried and maybe even put to death. And so they find Jesus in the synagogue and, and they're, they're all there. And in spite of this, Jesus, Mark tells us that Jesus says he doesn't seem really all that flustered by it. He stands up among them and he invites a man with a withered hand, Mark tells us, to come. And, and he, says, he says to the man with a withered hand, come here. Come here, or stick out your hand. And the man with the withered hand, we don't really know why it's withered. We don't know really what's going on, but we know that something is dysfunctional. We know that something is broken. And Jesus is there, and he poses this question. Is it lawful to do harm or to do good on the Sabbath? If you were to turn over to Matthew's Gospel, you would find a little addition to the story that gives a little bit more description. But the point is clear. Jesus asks this question. Let me ask you a question, religious leaders. Let me ask you a question, religious people. Is it lawful to do harm or to do good? What is permissible on the Sabbath according to your rules? And he asks them a question that is frankly unanswerable. Because if they answer in the wrong way, what they're going to reveal is they actually are going to reveal that here is a man who is suffering. Here is a man who is suffering under the weight of sin. His body has been mangled. It has been affected by sin. And if they answer wrongly, it's going to reveal the truth about their heart. And what is the truth? That they care more about religion and rule keeping than they do about the people they are bearing the image of God. They lack so little compassion. They lack so little empathy for this man that they are more interested in rules. They are more interested in this preservation of rules and a religious system than they are about doing good. And Mark tells us that when Jesus poses this question to him and they do not answer, Jesus actually looks at them and he responds with anger. Mark says he's actually grieved to his heart, grieved to the very core of his being. And this is the right response. Truly. 
I mean, Jesus shows us something that he shows us that whenever our religious observance, whenever our rule keeping gets in the way of the things that are near and dear to the heart of God, we have a problem. Right? We, we have a problem. We, we have, we are, some, something is clearly, uh, our priorities are in the wrong place when we're more interested in rule keeping than we are in doing what is near and dear to God's heart. You see, for Jesus, what he's teaching us here, I think what he's showing us about the heart of God is that mercy and love supersedes playing by the rules. And to prove this point, there is something that, is, that Jesus is about to do that defies customs, that defies cultural norms. He, he begins to violate this Sabbath law in a public fashion. So he says to the man, stick out your hand. And he said to the man again, stretch out your hand. And the man stretches it out. And Mark says, and his hand was restored. What Jesus does here is he captures the very heart of God in places like Hosea chapter 6 where we read God saying through the prophet Hosea, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. All throughout the prophets, there was this idea that the prophets were speaking about where the people of God, where God would say about the people, listen, I want you to show love. I want you to show mercy. I want you to show compassion. And I care about this so much more than I care about how meticulous you are about your rule keeping. Because all of this is meant to show the heart of God. All of this is meant to show the goodness of Jesus. And all of this is meant to point forward to something that is coming. You see, the Sabbath understood rightly is a day in which we not only get to worship, but a day in which we get to rest and to be refreshed, to be renewed. And there is a day coming, friends, through, through the blood of Jesus, through what we just celebrated last week on Resurrection Sunday, that we are, we are waiting for and that we have been afforded, and that is when we find our ultimate rest, when God comes back and makes all things new and all things right in the world. And I thought about this for us. In our, in our time, for you and for me, what is our temptation with the Sabbath? Is it that we play by the rules and often negate mercy and sacrifice? Possibly. I think that's part of maybe, maybe part of our problem, but I think a bigger problem within the church today, maybe, maybe in our lives, and I know this is certainly in my life as I thought about this text, is that the Sabbath, instead of being a day of worship and refreshment, is actually a day that I look at for my own sense of self-indulgence and freedom. If I'm going to be honest with you this morning, I look at the Sabbath day like many Christians in the world oftentimes, and I think I can give God, I don't know, 9 to, nine to 12, but the rest of the day is mine. I mean, it's the only day that I don't have to go to the office. It's the only day that I can kick back in the recliner. It's the only day that I can do what I want to do. And so God, I'll give you this window of my time, but beyond that, don't ask me for any more. And I know that sounds sinister when it, it sounds really bad coming out of my mouth, right? But like, let's just be honest with what goes on in our hearts oftentimes. You see, we often look at this day as a day about us more than it is about God. It's a day about me. Again, Judith Schultz in her book speaks to this. She says, the Sabbath day is not one of individualistic or personal liberty, 
nor is it merely a day of unfettered leisure. Don't misunderstand me here, though, unless you misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you forego everything on the Sabbath and that you become this dour, slavish person that you're going to respond to God. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that you forego Sunday afternoon lunch. I'm not suggesting that you forego time with friends. I'm not suggesting that you do any of that. You see, I think the thing, the problem for us mostly in the modern West is this, this consideration of what Jesus might be calling us to is that for him, and that is for you and I to see him as the Lord of time. You see, he is the Lord of our time. And instead of getting to live as though this day, this Sabbath day were my own, I now have the freedom and the privilege to live as though it belongs to him. And what happens when we do this, church? What happens when you and I see the Sabbath rightly? What happens when you and I see time rightly and see it under the Lordship of Jesus? There's one commentator who wrote this. If we understand the Sabbath rightly and if we understand our, how it relates to our time rightly, it rescues us, rescues us from our self-aggrandized place of Lordship over creation and our lives because we get to hand the authority of the world, including our time, back to the one whom it already belongs. That's a lot of words. So if I could summarize it, I would say this. Your day, your life, your time, it actually already belongs to God. It actually already belongs to Him. By you choosing to use it in a way that He calls you to, you actually find what you were created for. You see, I think that's the thing that is missing from this. Is that when we view time, and when we view particularly this day, the Sabbath day, as though it were the Lord's himself, we actually find the rest and refreshment and proper place that, we, that we've been longing for. You see, whenever you give your time to Christ, whenever you give your time to him, whenever you lay down your rights and your claim, you actually find freedom you actually find rest and refreshment. But what, you, what gives Jesus the right to do this? What, what gives Jesus the claim on this? And I want to turn to Galatians 4, and the, where the Apostle Paul says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Did you hear that phrase, when the fullness of time had come? And what it offers you today is that what you could never acquire by rule keeping, what you could never acquire through religious observance and through meticulous obedience, what you could never acquire by working yourself to the bone, whether that's before the face of God or before the face of your fellow man, you now have been given through the life death and the resurrection of Jesus. Rather than working yourself to the bone, you've now been given a place of love and grace and adoption as sons and daughters of the Father. And it's yours through faith in Christ. You don't need to prove yourself to God. You don't have to prove yourself to other people because ultimately what God has said about you matters so much more than what other people could ever say about you. And what he says about you is that you are a son, that you are a daughter, that you are loved. 
And if you understand this, you are now free to use your time in a way that is countercultural, in a way that is radical, in a way that swims upstream. You're able to redeem the time, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. You're able to use your time in a way that shows people the goodness and grace of the Lord. Rather than allowing yourself to become broken by our civilization, rather than allowing yourself to become broken by the time and the schedules that the world invites us to keep, you and I now are set free to use our time when we surrender to Him. And as I mentioned already, there's a day coming when this will be finally and fully realized. When everything that is broken, everything that is awry, everything that we lament and long for will be recognized. When our creation will be liberated and renewed, when we will finally be able to rest. But until that day, what will your life look like? What will you do when you leave this place? Will you surrender to Christ who has the claim on your time? Or will you continue to live as if it were your own? When you surrender to him, you find life. You find life by doing what feels, what feels opposite of what you should be doing. My prayer for us this week is that you might pray and ask God the Father how you might use your time in a way that reflects his glory and his goodness and grace, not only in your life but in the world around you. Let's pray. And Father in heaven, we do thank you for your love and for your mercy. And we ask that you would grant us grace now as we meditate on your word, as we think about the words that we have just heard, as we think about this reflection in our own life. May you speak to us, minister to us, and help us to know how we ought to apply it to our lives in this meditation moment. Amen. Let us respond now by singing, standing and singing together hymn number 446, Be Thou My Vision.